And now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 14, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, indeed, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we make our way through this history of your people, as we see your mighty acts, as we see the the way that your people work themselves into knots of sin and you deliver them, Father, may we continually look to Jesus. Help us to understand our own deliverance, our own salvation, as you have worked mighty things on our behalf. So we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have a place to worship today. I'm thankful for all of these families who you have brought under the care of this congregation. I'm thankful for their faithfulness to you and their their love for your word. Father, I pray that you would make me a capable messenger of your word today. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus and your Holy Spirit. And so by your Holy Spirit, fill us today so that we can understand, hear, receive these things and change and grow. Continually reform us and revive us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why do we become the thing that we hate? Have you ever seen this? You know what I'm talking about. Last week we saw it a little bit with David's sons imitating the sins of their father. Amnon imitated the sin of his father by laying hold of his sister, his half-sister Tamar, the way that David laid hold of Bathsheba. And Absalom despised his father so much that he acted just like him. And he put his brother to death using his servants just the way that David put his brother Uriah to death using his army. Absalom, in disrespect for his father, hoping to distance himself from his father, ends up living a sad parody of his dad's life. He became the thing that he hated. He ends up, in fact, far worse than the father he despises. So what is this phenomenon where we become the things that we hate? We want to be so far away from the thing that disgusts us that we circle the globe and we come all the way back around and we become somehow worse than the thing that we're so uh, spiteful of. Think of the way, and there's so many examples of this, but one glaring example is the way that leftists in our world, by leftists I'm talking about all manner of reactionaries and revolutionaries and cultural Marxists, those in our world who oppose the church. They oppose the church for being so rigid and so legalistic and so backward, but have in the process created their own counterfeit religion that is more puritanical than the grossest caricature of the Puritans. Now, I love the Puritans and understand when we use the word puritanical in a pejorative sense, we're talking about a caricature of the Puritans. And leftists and cultural Marxists in our day have this uh, have this religion that they've put together that's more puritanical than the, than the Puritans. They have this intense, acute awareness of original sin. They have their own doctrine of original sin. It just goes like this. 
if you are male, if you are white, if you are Southern, if your parents were successful, and God forbid all four are true of you, then you're born with original sin. You have sins that you're born with that you must atone for. You see, they have a very strict creed, listing things that you must believe as a modern enlightened individual. And you can't take any exception to their doctrinal statements. You see, in the, in the Presbyterian Reformed world, we have our doctrinal statements, we have our confession of faith, but you can take exceptions on things that don't strike at the vitals. Well, they're very strict. They're strict subscriptionists. They have their confession and you must agree to every line, even if the lines were written about two weeks ago, right? How long have there been 76 genders? About three months? I don't know. But this is, this is now the dogma and you must sign off. You cannot deviate in any way. If you preach any heresy, you're branded a heretic and you get a scarlet letter and you get shunned. You're persona non grata. And you can't, we, we can't talk about that person anymore. They go down the memory hole, right? Label them, whatever, sexist, homophobic, you know, racist, whatever. You can't even acknowledge their existence anymore. <laughs> so you ask, what, what do you mean we haven't accomplished anything in this generation? Sure, we've accomplished something. We've revived the art of shunning. We, we now have, have perfected the art of shunning. And we shun those who are heretics from our, our dogma. Uh, they leftists have their own creation story that drives everything. You know, the Big Bang and, and Darwinism, it drives everything. The way that our creation story uh, informs and drives everything for us. They even have their own eschatology, right? We have ruined the earth to the point that one day the earth is going to make us pay. See, they, they, have, they hit all the beats and they have, their own, they have their own religion. In opposition to the church, they have erected their own church, but it's a very sad, it's a very broken parody. Well, why is this? Well, it seems that God allows counterfeits to rise up in order for his people to look at themselves in this kind of fun house mirror. You know, when you go to the carnival, you see these goofy mirrors and you look squat or you look skinny or you look something in between. And actually it improves my appearance. I love those things because I, I look like a human when we look in there. But God allows these counterfeits to, 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 be, to rise up in order for his people to look at themselves in this funhouse mirror and to see how ridiculous they appear. Much later uh, in Solomon's time, Jeroboam is going to play this role. And you all know the story of Jeroboam, but think back uh, quickly. Solomon drives Jeroboam out of the land and he goes where? He goes to Egypt where he remains until Solomon's death. And when Jeroboam gets back, he asks Rehoboam to lighten the load on his people. How, who's that sound like? It sounds like Moses, right? Re, uh, uh, Jeroboam comes back and he says, let my people go. It's a Moses theme. Rehoboam refuses. And then Jeroboam leaves, leads 10 tribes out into freedom and they set up a new kingdom. He builds temple shrines at Dan and Bethel. He erects these golden calves, complete with priests, with their own religion, their own festival calendar. Jeroboam, in this whole account, in this whole story, he looks like Moses, but he's a false Moses. His system of worship is unauthorized. His priests are invalid. It's all a big parody of the truth. And it was meant to show Rehoboam his unfaithfulness. And it was meant to show the remaining kingdom of Judah their errors. 
It's kind of like Islam today and other uh, cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. We look at them and we say, oh, they get everything out of proportion and everything's all messed up. And, and when you study them, they reveal our own errors to us. They show us where we get things wrong. Everything that we get wrong like this, they get wrong like this. And it's a parody and it's a funhouse mirror. We look at it and we see our errors. Well, in 2 Samuel, we're going to see how the life of David is being parodied by his son Absalom as Absalom steps into David's role that he took on in his younger life. And by Absalom... Uh, shifting over into David's role, David is going to shift over into Saul's role. See, Absalom leaves the house. He, he flees from an angry king. He goes to live among the Gentiles, just like his father David did. Later, Absalom is going to come back. He's going to be anointed king in Hebron, and he's going to take over the throne. Absalom is, is a bad version of David because none of this is done in faithfulness. None of this is done with, with any sense of loyalty to the Lord or, or, or faithfulness to his law. Absalom is a bad, sad version of David. But if you can believe it, what, this, what ends up happening is that David becomes the thing he hates. David becomes worse than Saul. David is a bad version of Saul. You see, Saul had faithful sons. David has rotten sons. When, when David left, Saul pursued David. When Absalom leaves, David doesn't pursue his sons. He doesn't go after him. Last week, we saw this sad episode begin when, again, David's son, Amnon, forced himself on his half-sister, Tamar. He abused her, and then he rejected her. He hated her more than he loved her to begin with. Tamar was Amnon's half-sister, but she was Absalom's full sister. They shared the same mother and father. David refuses to act after Amnon abuses his sister. David doesn't do anything, so Absalom grows bitter and angry, and he commands his servants to kill his brother Amnon. David is grieved by this, but Absalom flees, and he goes stay and stays with his mother's people in a Gentile country. Well, as we open up the next chapter, we find that David's heart is concerned about Absalom. I know I read it just a few minutes ago, but this is one of those chapters of the Bible that um, can be a, a little confusing if you're not reading carefully and you're not reading closely. So I do want to read very carefully this morning and keep track of the narrative. So David's heart is concerned. Verse 1, chapter 14, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, we're reminded here, Zeruiah is David's sister, and we're being told again, Joab is family. Joab is David's nephew and the general of his army. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. This language gives the sense that he was burdened by Absalom, not necessarily sympathetic to him or that he's yearning for him, but this lets us know that the situation is not at rest. And because of this leftover business with Amnon and with Absalom, David is not at rest. But he shouldn't be at rest because he hasn't, he hasn't provided Sabbath. He hasn't provided Sabbath for anyone. Um, remember in the last chapter, we had some garden imagery. And David was in the role of Adam. David failed to guard the garden. He failed to guard his children. And as a result, over the next three chapters, David is going to be kicked out of the garden. David is going to be kicked out of Jerusalem uh, from his failure to act just the way Adam was. So David's nephew, Joab, doesn't like the fact that there's conflict between the king and the crown prince, 
Absalom. He assumes that, that Absalom is next in line. And he fears that this conflict is going to tear the kingdom apart. Joab wants Absalom to come back and ensure that the kingdom doesn't fall apart after David's death. But we can't forget that God has already designated the next king in line. God has already said through the prophet Nathan that Solomon is, in fact, the crown prince, not Absalom. But Joab doesn't know this or he doesn't care. Either way, Joab has a desire to bring Absalom back into the fold. And he thinks, Joab thinks, this is what's going to save the kingdom. When in fact, this destroys the kingdom. It, it nearly brings everything down to the ground. Verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil. But act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put words in her mouth. So she's going to be pretending to be, uh, uh, have been mourning for many days, hoping to count on the, the, the sympathy of a king who has mourned over his own sons. So she's going to tell a story about her sons, hoping that David sympathizes with her. Verse four, and when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. Joab found a great actor, she, or actress. She needs, you know, she needs a, uh, an Academy Award. She's pouring it on. This is the cry of a widow without protection. She's powerless. She's crying out for justice. Joab may have put words in her mouth, but, but she's brought her own set of acting skills to the table. Verse five, and the king said to her, what troubles you? You know, what's, what's wrong with you, woman? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field. But there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. In her story... Uh, her two sons were struggling together. They were wrestling, they were roughhousing. One killed the other. And now there's a whole contingent of her family that's calling for the death of the remaining son, the one who killed the other. They're, they're, the ones who are calling for the death penalty have the law on their side, but the mother loves her son. And because she's a widow, because she has no other sons, this boy is her only future. He was, she says, he's one remaining coal in a dying fire. Now, this is a skillfully fabricated story. There are all kinds of things that Joab knows are going to be firing off in David's head as he hears this story. Not the least of which is the story, the well-known story of David's own grandmothers, Ruth and Naomi, who were in a similar spot, right? Ruth and Naomi had not even a coal left in their fire. They were widowed and they didn't have any offspring. And that, maybe that helps bring out his sympathy a little bit. Now, the question of whether to execute a uh, an obviously guilty son, this question had immobilized the king against his own sons. Um, this, he, he knows what it's like to be in this position where there's a boy who needs to be dealt with, with you know, legally, but um, 
I, I haven't acted because he's my son. I can't act. So, so there are various levels at which David could sympathize with this woman. Don't forget, this is a made-up story. And so even though he's being stirred up to sympathize, not everything's on the level. Uh, this, the story of, of Cain and Abel also is right on the surface. Two sons struggling in a field. One strikes down the other, and there's a threat uh, to the surviving son from everybody else. Remember, Yahweh protected Cain and put a mark on his head. Even though he was a murderer, um, a, a God threatened to take vengeance on anyone who sought to kill Cain. Well, and that sounds a lot like what David says over uh, the next few verses. David is going to take on the role of protector over this fictitious son that this widow is talking about. Verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. You know, if anybody says anything about this, you bring him to me. Uh, You don't have to worry about it. I'll take care of it. Verse 11, then she said, please let the king remember Yahweh your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now he talks about what, well, that's an odd statement. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Who, who's he thinking about as he talks about this? Well, Absalom, as we'll see in just a few verses, is famous for his uh, glorious head of hair. And so he's got hair on his, on his mind. He's got hair on his brain as he says this. And, and so he's, there's this little connection to his own son, perhaps, in his mind. Now, it sounds like David is being merciful here. And, and he's even um, explicitly bringing the Cain association into it. Look, if anybody lays a hand on him, I will strike them down. But at bottom, not even the king is above God's law. There are provisions in God's law for extenuating circumstances. If the death were accidental, if it were not murder, if it were, if it were manslaughter, then the one committing the manslaughter needs to go to a city of refuge as we work this thing out. The elders of the city need to investigate the matter to make sure that he didn't really intend to kill his brother. And then if we figure this out and we find out he really didn't have any malice aforethought, then he needs to stay in the city of refuge for the rest of his life, or at least until the high priest dies. Them's the rules, right? You, that's, that's what God says. That's, that's what we're supposed to do here. The king can't make loopholes in God's law. And even if David wanted to be merciful to his own sons, and we saw last week, there are about four different scenarios that could have played out with Amnon and and Tamar. If David could somehow justify applying a lesser judgment to this case, and if we want to say, well, the Davidic covenant, maybe maybe it's more merciful than the Mosaic covenant. What God's doing here is maybe maybe we we see some, let's, let's talk that out, but let's carry things out in an orderly way. Amnon needed to be confronted by his father on his sin, and he needed to be brought to repentance. Absalom now must be dealt with, and David is doing nothing. And this woman is bringing something to him, and he's following the same path. It's like, I know what God says, and I know what we're supposed to do here. There there is a place for those who have committed manslaughter. There is a way to deal with this in God's law. But what we're going to do is we're just going to wave our hand over it and and just magically hope that it goes away and and just hope that we can pronounce mercy when the sin hasn't been addressed. And that leaves victims twisting in the wind. 
when you wave your hand and say, oh, well, we'll just be merciful here and we'll pray that everything works out, that leaves victims exposed. Well, David told the woman to go back home, but she's going to ask one more thing. She's going to say something else. Verse 12. Therefore, the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to my Lord, the king. And he said, say on. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this king, uh, this thing, the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring the banished one home again. For he will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. She's making kind of a blunt attack here. She's, she's accusing David of doing something against the people of God. We are being spilled on the ground like water because of what you're doing. She's also accusing the king of being two-faced. He has decreed now that the banished son of the woman would be restored, but he hasn't done anything for his own exiled, banished son. So she kind of blindsides him with this. And of course, all this was put into her mouth by Joab. Don't forget that, 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 that this is all a script. And, and after she blindsides him with this accusation, she immediately cushions the blow by reverting to her own completely fictitious situation. Back uh, verse, uh, verse 15, she, I stopped right in the middle of a, a thought here from her. Verse 15, now therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may Yahweh your God be with you. So after delivering this blow is like, you've left us exposed because you haven't dealt with Absalom. She now comes back and she depicts David as a deliverer. He is a man of great insight. She prays that the Lord will be present with the king. All of this is to smooth over the blow of her accusation. Now, we set this up. A woman goes to the king and, and she comes with this story We've seen this before, right? Just a few chapters before, a king is in sin. Someone comes to rebuke him with a parable which relates to his own situation. It kind of looks like Nathan coming to David over the sin with Bathsheba, but it isn't Nathan this time. It's Joab manipulating a woman. And while Nathan's story cut to the quick, and while Nathan's story immediately convicted David, there was repentance that followed when Nathan came and said, you are the man. Here, we have this, this pushing and this pulling, this, this manipulation and this tug of war with the situation. There are bold statements immediately smoothed over by calm reassurances. It's like we, we say it, but then we just take it back. And nothing is really, um, uh, it really is nothing like the situation that David uh, is dealing with. Her story isn't isn't similar to the deal with Absalom. You see, um, Absalom and Amnon weren't roughhousing in the field when Amnon died. They, they, weren't, you know, they weren't wrestling. Absalom plotted the death of Amnon. So the example that she gives, her little parable is way off. And David catches on. He knows that something is going on behind all of this. Verse 18, 
The, the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask of you. And the woman said, please let my Lord, the king speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, as you live, my Lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has spoken for your servant Joab has commanded me. And he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. I mean, she is just trying to smooth over and smooth over and, and just fill his ears with platitudes, hoping that he'll say, oh, yeah, I remember faithful prophet Nathan did this to me. And now Joab is being faithful and, and he's doing this to me. And it's just another parable. And they're just trying to help. Um, but, but David can smell Joab's influence all over it. Verse 21. And the king said to Joab, all right. I've granted this thing. You know, I already told you I would do it. I've granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man, Absalom. So I know what you really are looking for. You're looking for me to bring back Absalom. So let's do this too. So Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and he went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. Joab is instantly on the scene. As soon as David asks, is Joab behind this? Joab is there. It's like the next line is out of Joab's mouth. So it's like Joab was like waiting behind the curtains, just kind of peeking around the corner, seeing how everything's going to go. And, and the instant his plot is uncovered, Joab jumps out and says, yeah, but this is why we were doing this. We want to get Absalom back. We, we care so much about Absalom. And Joab is just so thrilled that David agrees to this plan. Now we have Absalom coming back to Jerusalem, but his dad doesn't want anything to do with him. He says, he can come back, but I don't want to see his face. I don't want him to look at my face. I want him out of my face. I don't want to, I can't even look at him. He makes me so sick. Now it's at this point that we get this little clip about Absalom's good looks. A little, a little vignette on uh, Absalom's hair care and his family. Uh, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Absalom is Mr. Israel. His face is on the cover of every magazine, and he's in love with his own hair. Um, he cuts it off every year, and when they weigh it, the, the, what, 200 shekels, that's about six pounds. Now, that's impossible. You can't grow six pounds of hair in one year. So it must have been weighed down with a lot of oil, a lot of product, you know, a lot of uh, beads and bows and whatever else he stuck in his beautiful hair. He's in love with his hair. He has three sons and one daughter. And what's the name of his daughter? Tamar. He's got a beautiful daughter who he names after his beautiful sister, Tamar. 
Uh, why did he name his daughter Tamar? Is it a warning? Like, do you know what happened to the last guy who touched a Tamar? You want to touch this Tamar? I want to show you what's going to happen if you touch this Tamar. Everybody knows the story. You touch her, you're dead. I think that's the point. Well, this whole description of Absalom reminds us of um, Saul, of course. There's just so many layers of, of, of references here. Saul, remember, was choice and handsome. And we're told that Saul was handsome when he was on the way to be anointed by Samuel as king. David's appearance is described right before he is announced as the next king. Now we get Absalom's description of his handsomeness. Now what's going to happen? Well, he's about to make a bid for the throne, just like Saul did, just like David did. And that's what's going to happen. Do you remember when we saw David's house building, when we saw the lists of all his wives and children and all of his affairs and all of his counselors and court, uh, court attendants? Now we have a little, a little list of Absalom's house. Absalom has been doing a little house building in preparation for the throne. Like Saul, Absalom is the most handsome Israelite of his time. And like Saul, Absalom has a notable head. Saul had a towering head. He was head above everybody else in Israel. Absalom has a hairy head. Hair is a crown and it's glory. And Absalom's pride in his hair shows him to be a man full of his own glory. In fact, Absalom is an anti-Nazarite. He, he cuts his hair every year like a Nazarite holy warrior, but Absalom's a violent man. He's vain about his own beauty. He's not fighting the Lord's war. He's fighting his own war. He wants to fight his own battles rather than the Lord's. And so not only is he a bad image of, of David, but we're about to see him act out a bad parody of Samson. Next, verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him, uh, to, send him to the king. Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to his, Absalom's house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is an iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. This is Absalom's perverted idea of holy war. He's so frustrated that he's been back in Jerusalem for two years at the court, but nobody will return his calls. Joab will not return his calls. So to get Joab's attention, he burns his field. And like Harry, Samson burned the field of the Philistines. And one of my favorite stories of all the Old Testament, when Samson ties the tails of foxes together and he puts a torch in between them and he sends them out through the fields of the Philistines. I think, man, there's a guy with time on his hands, right? He catches, how hard is it to catch one fox? And he catches all these foxes and, and then to tie their tails together and put a torch in between them. And say, that's, that's creative. That's really creative. And Absalom doesn't go to all that trouble, but he still, he sets his cousin's field on fire because you haven't returned my calls. Joab, can you hear me now? Do I have your attention? 
Absalom is willing to destroy his neighbor's property to get his way. And this action here is only the beginning of a fire that he's about to kindle in all of Israel. And so we see this is the kind of king we would have in Absalom. What's the question of this section of Samuel? Who is going to be the king who carries on the promise to the next generation? Who is the son of the promise? David has been given all these promises. Okay, who's the son of the promise? Is it Amnon? Well, no, Amnon uh, took his half-sister and abused her. Well, is it Absalom? Well, no, Absalom has killed his brother and he's burned his cousin's field and he's gonna be the kind of king that burns all of Israel. He's gonna set the whole kingdom on fire before he's finished. Who's the king? That's the question, and we see the failure of one of David's sons after another. Now, I wonder if Joab kind of regrets bringing Absalom back to town now. I mean, you you burned my field, and I did this for you. The end of the chapter, we see the king kissing his son, but there's no attempt to really bridge the gulf. Each of them sees the guilt in the other. Each of them is cold and unforgiving. Absalom has come into the king's presence and he's bowed before the king, but he's not gonna remain loyal to the king. The king kissed his son, but there's no conversation. How can there be reconciliation without conversation? How can we fix this without talking about it? You see, when Joseph was restored to his brothers, there was a lot of weeping and there was a lot of talking. Joseph had long since put the bitterness of his brother's actions behind him, and he was ready to receive them and offer forgiveness. We don't see anything like that here. The relationship is deadlocked because they're not talking to each other. Now, we're at the end of the chapter, and this whole chapter is like one of those frustrating movies where nobody does anything that makes sense. You ever watch a scary movie? It's like, why are you going upstairs? Don't go up the stairs. Get out of the house. It's really simple. Get out of the house. The monster, the, the crazy person is upstairs. Get out of the house. Or these you know, romantic comedies where if y'all would just talk, all of this would be solved. The movie would be over in five minutes. You know, uh, The guy has lunch uh, with a girl and his you know, fiance sees him and he doesn't have a chance to explain, well, she's my cousin and she's just in town and I just saw her. I want to have lunch with her. But we can't just say she's my cousin. We've got to have two hours of like, you know, miscommunication before we figure this out. This is, this is kind of like that. It's, it's kind of tough because everyone is behaving so, so poorly and so foolishly. Joab parodies Nathan. It looks like confrontation, but it isn't confrontation. It's just confusion. Long-haired Absalom parodies Samson, but it isn't holy war that he's undertaken. It's personal advancement and personal glory. David is just a shell of his former self. It looks like reconciliation, but it isn't. David doesn't rule. David reacts. He doesn't reign. He consents. He appears decisive one moment, but he caves in the next. And you know, it's all confusing and it's all a big mess, but human behavior really hasn't changed over the last 4,000 years. Maybe they rode horses and we drive cars. Maybe they had couriers and we have telephones. But back then people were just as apt to avoid responsibility as we are today. People like Joab were just as likely to manipulate and use other people as we are today. They were just as likely to be duped by false piety and false wisdom as we are today. You see, both then and now, there's something that looks like wisdom. It even sounds like wisdom, but it's really folly. It's folly because it depends on anecdotes 
This happened to me one time. I saw this one time. I read this somewhere. It depends on emotions. I feel like this is right. I feel like this is bad. I feel like that's mean or that's unloving. It all depends on trajectories. If we do this, then this will surely happen because I'm a prophet and I can see the future. And if you do this, this is bound to happen because I am so wise. You see, it depends on this false wisdom, depends on uh, emotions, it depends on anecdotes, it depends on trajectories, not objective truth. You see, if you're depending on truth to guide your steps, it doesn't matter what you heard somewhere, this is still the truth. It doesn't matter how you feel about it, this is still the truth. It doesn't matter where it takes us because it's still the truth. And as long as it's the truth, it's not gonna take you anywhere that will destroy you. Uh, so this false wisdom, this false piety is everywhere and it's, it's counterfeit. There's something that looks like compassion and grace in our world today, but it's just abdication and rejection of the truth. Here in this story is a woman who's been manipulated into telling a story that gets David all riled up about an injustice. He gets all worked up, but her story isn't true. And the motive behind it isn't just, and it isn't right. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. You don't believe emotional manipulators then in David's kingdom, and you don't believe emotional manipulators today. She was a widow coming to David, painting this narrative that if you don't do this thing, all of Israel is going to be widowed. We're all going to be like water poured out on the ground. So be compassionate, David. Show grace to the exile, the one to whom injustice has been done. But her narrative is way off. Israel was not widowed. God has things in hand. Solomon is waiting in the wings. And oh, by the way, this guy that we feel so sorry for, Absalom, don't forget, he's a murderer and he hasn't been dealt with. You see, you and I are constantly being assaulted by the same kind of outrage brokers. There are people in our world who want to manipulate your emotions and get you stirred up about this thing or that thing or the other thing. And I hate to say it comes from both sides of the aisle. It comes from left and it comes from the right. And there are people and it comes from Christians. It seems like the only way we can get anybody to do anything, I guess, is to stir up their emotions and get them full of outrage to get them to do something. And our, our duty is to step back and say, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. I don't care really about your emotions. I don't care about your anecdotes. I don't want to hear about your prophetic trajectories. What I want to know is what is the truth. That's all really I'm concerned about. Let's establish the truth and then we'll work from there. If there's something to get really worked up about, about the truth. But, but we have from every direction this, this, this outrage that is coming from a, a, a perverted sense of what is right and wrong. Perverted doesn't mean just gross. It means twisted. It means minimizing the sins that you want to ignore and making a big deal about other sins that you really want to make a big deal about. And, and, and that's, that's what we've got coming from every angle. And David gets sucked right into it. And it's going to destroy the kingdom. Everything's going to be on fire before it's done. Avoid 
outrage brokers, avoid emotional manipulation. The only way I know to do that, the only way to see through the false worldly wisdom and emotional manipulators is by knowing the truth and spending a whole lot of time in God's word under good teaching and with good books and obviously with God's word as a primary source that you know inside and out. That's the only way to cut through this and keep an emotional distance. I see you get all worked up but I'm gonna keep a distance because I, I need to know what is the truth here. You're, you're, you're tearing your hair out and you're setting everything on fire, but I need to know what actually the truth is. Don't be sucked in by emotional manipulators. One other quick thing, uh, a reflection on this. Notice in all of this that David is not really the same man that he was before he used his position of power over Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah. The assumption is this, and this is an assumption that I've lived with for a long time, that, that, well, David sinned and God wiped it away and then everything was fine. And so the conclusion of that is, well, if David can sin that way, I mean, David, he took a woman who wasn't his wife and he killed a man and, and God kind of wiped it all away and everything was normal. And so if, if God can do that with David, well, what can I get away with? What will God forgive me of? You see, we've got a problem in the way we approach the Old Testament is that we pull out stories like that and we read them in isolation and we all know that story, but we don't know what happens next or what happens after that or what happens after that. You see, if you pull this story out and you just study it by itself, you get the impression that God just kind of smoothed everything over and everything was fine. But if you read the next few chapters, you see that's not the story at all. After the sin with, with Bathsheba and Uriah, things really start to fall apart. Now, in the midst of this, God is merciful, God is kind, and God is gracious, and God is forgiving, but nothing is the same after this. And forgive me for hammering on this one more time, but sin has consequences. Nothing is ever the same after this destructive act. God, David is forgiven, but lives are still destroyed. And when we look at David's deferral his avoidance, his ignoring sin, just, just not wanting to deal with it, hoping that it'll go away, just kind of waving his hand and the magic wand of mercy, hoping that everything just takes care of itself. Absalom comes back and Absalom is left in limbo. He's there for two years and his dad won't even look at his face. How many of us would say, yeah, that's a good dad. That's a really good king. That's a, good, that's a loving father. I want a king like that as well. None of us would say that's a good idea. But isn't there a part of us that would prefer that that's the way that God would deal with our sin? That he, God would be the kind of king, that God would be the kind of father who would just kind of just say, uh, no, just ignore it. Nothing to see here. I mean, it's fine. That's not loving, is it? That's, that's not a good father. That's not a good king. And so your father, your heavenly father loves you so much that he doesn't just ignore your sin. He stops it. He stops us in our tracks. He, he, he puts the weight of guilt on us to know what we have done. He convicts us by his Holy Spirit and reminds us that he sent his son to deal with our sin. He doesn't push it off or hope that it goes away because it never goes away on its own. But that he sends his son to deal with our sin. He sends his Holy Spirit to confront us with our sin so that it can be dealt with the right way and so that we can be forgiven and so that we can go on. 
because it's not loving to ignore it. It's not loving to forget it. And so he confronts us and he deals with it. And that's how we know that he loves us. He does love us, in fact. Let's pray. Father, let's always remember. Father, give us this ability to remember your great love toward us in Jesus. Let us never forget that. And Father, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to that end to walk in your law and to not be sucked in to emotional manipulation, guilt manipulation, uh, uh, outrage, uh, Father, that, that surrounds us on every side. But may we go deeper and deeper by your Holy Spirit. Lead us deeper and deeper into your word to understand it, to think your thoughts after you, to live by it every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.